This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the very niche and kind of geeky details of modern warfare with me, Jake Hanrahan. For this episode, we're speaking to James Pogue. He's a journalist and author, and he's just got back from South Africa where he's been reporting on the farmer killings. Now, the truth of what's actually going on out there is kind of shrouded. You've got these spooky fascists saying it's one thing. You've got liberals saying it doesn't even exist. The truth is in the middle. So James is going to tell us all about the farm killings and the farmers who are basically organizing militias to fight what they think will be a civil war in South Africa in the near future. If you like what we're doing at Popular Front, please consider helping it move forward by pledging at patreon.com slash popularfront. You've just been in uh, South Africa, right? You've been writing this article for Harper's Magazine. What were you doing there? And, you know, what's the article about? Well, so basically how I came to this is that I, um, I mean, as you know, like I covered, you know, right wing guys in the US, right? And like these sort of yeah. like libertarian Mormons who I wrote a book about. And these are guys who I kind of associated with being like in the vein of like American libertarian, like away from that sort of Euro nationalist right wing thing. Um, and I started to get videos from these guys that started to kind of freak me out where they were like, talking about heritage and Norse mythology and whatever. And I was like, "Uh oh, this is a little weird. These are guys in Utah. You know, they started sending me videos about farmers in South Africa. And I was like, oh shit, these guys have gone full on Nazi. And so I started getting arguments with them where I was like, because they're saying like, hey, there's all these white farmers who are being brutally attacked and murdered and they're sending me videos, you know, and I'm getting videos from Lauren Southern and all these other people who you've probably heard of. And so just on the basis of that, I discounted it. Right. And then they started sending me videos about uh, land expropriation and they started saying, hey, the government in South Africa has decided that it's going to take all the white owned land and it's going to seize it without any compensation. And again, based on the sources, I was just like, well, this is probably bullshit. Um, and so I just argue with them, you know, via text, not even really bothering to look into it. Um, and then one day I thought, well, fuck it. You know, like if I'm going to actually have these arguments, I should research it a little bit. So I started going on YouTube and the crazy thing is, you know, South Africa is a country that's 80%, actually probably more, uh, black. Uh, it's a country where, you know, of grinding poverty, like a, one of the most violent societies in the world, it's often compared to like a, a, war zone that is in war that's facing a war in everything but name um yeah and you know all of the news that you could find was about these farmers and was about the plight of white south africans especially on youtube and i thought oh my god this is like a narrative that has taken off um so I started to hunt for like where this narrative had come from. And I wasn't the only journalist to do this, but I traced it back to this one man named Simon Rush, who is a white South African event planner, 47 years old, living in a tiny village called Vander Kloof, who uh, in 2017 came to the US and started meeting with white nationalist groups. Um, and he did a six month tour, you know, on Greyhound buses. He hitchhiked at times, he camped in the woods and he got you know, money because he was broke. He got money by selling goats back in South Africa and then, you know, raising money from identity Europa people, from, you know, other white nationalist groups around the country um, and kind of winged it. Ended up staying here six months and making a big impact. And the craziest thing about this is that this narrative of white people facing a, a looming genocide in South Africa um, became something that he was able to popularize and that eventually filtered up to Ann Coulter. It caused pressure amongst other sort of white activists in South Africa to come here in a sort of more mainstream way. And then they came on, you know, Tucker Carlson. And eventually this got to the president of the United States who started tweeting about it, um, at which point Harper's was like, hey, you're onto a real story here. Why don't you go to South Africa and investigate it? Right. That's a mad, um, that's kind of a roller coaster for this guy. But like you said, you know, there are a lot of kind of white supremacist types that talk about this, but there is actually a real problem, right? Now, I'm not saying that there's some kind of white genocide as all these fucking creepy motherfuckers come out with, but there is something going on, right? Like, what did you find when you went there? Absolutely. So the thing about this and like, you know, you have to be really careful because like 
you know, it's like anything in this mad society that we live in now, where if you say the wrong thing, it, you trip some wire and then everybody turns on you. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like every day I'm like, am I cancelled yet? <laughs> you know, like it's, it's, it's that bullshit thing is going around everywhere. Yeah, exactly. And like this is one of those things where it's like, you know, if you say that farm murders are real, it's sort of one of those zones where people kind of want to cancel you. But they are real. Um, there's you know, 62 of them every year, which sounds like a low number. But if you want to put it in the context of the fact that there's not that many farmers, white farmers in South Africa, um, there's probably 35,000, maybe less. Um, 62 murders a year comes out to quite a high rate. Um, you know, we're talking like I, I think I can't quite do the math off the top of my head, but I think it's over 300 per 100,000, which is extraordinarily high. Okay, so there is this real problem, and that's problem one is that a lot of farmers are getting killed. Uh, then you extrapolate from that, you say why, and some of it is pure crime. I would argue personally that the vast majority of it is pure crime. I think most sensible people would view that. The scary thing is that there is an element of just real pure rage uh, that we should get into because it comes from, I think, a a source that needs to be explored and kind of dealt with, but like this pure rage against like the situation of white people who were at the top of a virtual slave state for so long and then retained most of their political and economic power after the fall of apartheid. That's a really important point. Like I think a lot of people don't actually realize that, you know, whilst the white people had all this fucking control over everyone in South Africa and then, you know, thank God there's this revolution, but actually things are still quite bad, right, in terms of, like, uh, you know, positions of power and what have you. Right, I mean, so, actually, I mean, to, to do a little backstory, and again, I'm not, like, an expert, expert, expert on the, um, on the history of transition from apartheid to what we have now, but that said, there's a pretty easy way to view what happened in 1994, which is that the ANC was a broad-based, the ANC and the other resistance groups were a broad-based movement that were not oriented just around achieving political equality. They were a revolutionary movement that, you know, involved sanctions, that involved guerrilla warfare, that involved bombings, that involved brutal, brutal fighting in the townships to enforce party and ideological discipline. Um, it was a very traditional third world liberation movement. And then in 1994, um, after the first elections, they shifted and they made the same kind of, you know, not to use the tired turn, but like they used that, they made that neoliberal turn towards, hey, you know, political equality is achievable and it's something that doesn't cost anybody all that much. You give everybody the same civil rights and then you hope that economic equality will follow through, you know, sort of World Bank loans and economic growth and this sort of thing. So they abandoned what they had adopted in 1955 as a broad-based revolutionary wealth redistribution platform. Um, and they also abandoned this other thing, which was this idea that, like, the people who had committed brutal crimes against the vast majority of South African citizens would be punished. They gave that up and they created this Truth and Reconciliation Commission and everything else. And, you know, that pleased a lot of people in the time. So they so they basically gave amnesty to like a lot of the, you know, the white South Africans that fought against the resistance or just exploited people and stuff like that. Absolutely. And I mean, we see this across the world. It's obviously going to piss a lot of people off. I can see it coming. Well, that's the thing is like, and it wasn't, I mean, people at first were kind of, you know, People at first were very much on board. The vast majority of South Africans were very much on board. Now, when you look at particularly poor black South Africans who feel like um, very little has changed or in fact, um, and this is a kind of shocking statistic, but there are studies that show that like a lot of um, South Africans and indeed a majority of them feel like they were worse. They're worse off now than they were under apartheid. Really? Yeah, it's amazing when you start looking at some of these studies because unemployment is... 27% because 5 million South Africans and probably more, honestly, I think it's fair to say 10% of the 60 or so million South Africans uh, 
live in squatter camps. There are people who misremember how horrible apartheid was. Yeah, I think you see that actually in Iraq. Like, I don't know if you've seen that, but sometimes I remember when I first went to Iraq and there are Kurds and I was actually there on the fucking anniversary of the Halabja massacre where Saddam gassed everyone. And they were like, oh, well, you know, it's better under Saddam. It's like, no, mate, I'm sorry. <laughs> really? Like, I'm sure it wasn't. I, you know, I think people sometimes fling out those terms, basically meaning... Things are really shit now, actually, still. The parallel there that I think is fair is that South Africa today is an intensely, intensely unstable society where people are incredibly insecure. Everyone, I mean, even white people at the pinnacle of the society, I mean, they live behind electric gates with armed guards, with dogs, freaked out every night. They form militias to protect themselves in the suburbs. Like, this is a way of life that exists in South Africa now that, like, people are feeling like they're living in an economic and political war zone um, that is, just, to some degree, like, the, just a heightened state of, like, rampant capitalism, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think there's, um, I think, you know, normal people generally, I think, every, you know, I personally, I think no matter what, even if it's grisly, you should have the freedom above all else, even if it's worse. But generally, like, everyday people are not really always thinking that, you know? People just want to eat, like you said, and get to work. And I think that's what the left often forgets. They kind of completely forget actually maybe go and ask some working class people what they actually want rather than like smashing a bus stop or whatever you know what i mean right and i mean like the other way of looking at it too is i think a lot of people when they say like oh shit it was better under apartheid and again it's not like people are saying that as a way of expressing the deep deep-seated anger like it's a very yeah. powerful statement when a black person says that they don't i don't think mean that literally if i was to guess but like you know, it, it kind of evokes a feeling of rage and disappointment with what we actually have now, you know? Absolutely. And what, so what, what happened? So you went out there um, and you spent time with these, these white farmers, right? Yeah, so I did a thing. So, um, you know, me and my editors, we talked a lot about this because if you Google farm murders, you get story after fucking story that's the same thing, which is people come to South Africa to investigate a narrative that is boosted by white supremacists, and they say, are farm murders real, right? And they, you know, they say essentially kind of what I just said, which is, yes, they're real, but they're way less than this whole genocide thing that white supremacists are pushing. Then they go home. But what they've done is essentially boost the whole farm murder narrative even farther into the public discussion. Uh, and so what we wanted to do was kind of avoid repeating that. Uh, and we also wanted to tie into the thing that is really driving a lot of uh, white right-wing South Africans into a panic right now, which is not murders. Farm murders have been going on for a very long time. And in fact, um, in the period uh, immediately preceding democratic elections, when South Africa was in like a just total chaos, there were way more farm murders. They're way down from where they used to be. Um, and so the idea that suddenly there's this upswelling of rage against whites is to some degree probably true. And it's also probably true that a lot of farm murders are now prevented by the fact that there are a lot of private security agencies that whites have formed and you know funded. Uh, but the real thing that's going on here is that there is a drive to redistribute land along the lines of what the ANC called for in its Freedom Charter in 1955. And so the left of the ANC and uh, the left-wing parties, um, Black First, Land First, and the Economic Freedom Fighters, which are growing hugely in popularity, uh, these parties are pushing for um, the 87% of South Africa's land or agricultural land that is owned by whites, again, in a country where whites make up less than 9% of the population, uh, to be redistributed somewhere along the lines of what Mozambique and Zimbabwe attempted with, in each case, varying degrees of success. Um, and this has sent whites into an obvious panic. Um, and so what I wanted to do was kind of do both, where I went and talked to white farmers, and then I talked to black radicals uh, including like squatters who had taken over white land um, and like one of the sort of most firebrand kind of radical and seemingly violent uh, po politicians in South Africa, uh, who's this Leninist named Andule Tama. I can't even do the click, but uh, it's a Gosa name. And uh, 
so like I went and tried to combine um, this whole like investigating the white genocide thing with the actual problems of South Africans who are demanding this land and who are increasingly grabbing white land whether or not the government allows them to. Um, and so uh, I guess to talk about the white farmers first, like, you know, I hung out with radicals. I chose to go there and hang out with radicals, but I think most people on the ground dealing particularly with the Afrikaans-speaking population would say that whites in South Africa are often, not as a whole group, but on the fringe, becoming much, much more radical um, and are you know, increasingly uh, getting very freaked out about where the society is going. And I hung out with this group called the Sightlanders, who claim somewhat implausibly to have more than 100,000 supporters um, and who are preparing very, very actively for a civil war. Would you say this is like the beginnings of a militia? Well, okay, so actually I'll go into what the Sightlanders are because the Sightlanders, Simon Roche, the man who came to the United States, is the spokesman for the Sightlanders. Um, he's a rare English-speaking member of them. Um, his background is English-speaking. Most of them are Afrikaners. Um, and they're a very mysterious organization um, because a lot of people kind of write them off as jokesters and hucksters. And the guy who founded them this uh, is a former South African intelligence officer named Gustav Muller. Like, he has a lot of bankruptcies to his name and people... He claims to interpret the prophecies of a um, early 20th century, um, or late 19th century, early 20th century, uh, like prophet named Siner von Rendsburg. Um, and uh, like he presents this sort of buffoonish figure in the public eye. But if you look, as I did, um, at like leaked state security documents, they estimate the Sidelanders to have 169,000 members, um, including hundreds of ex-SADF, um, like high-level officers um, and intelligence figures, um, which is, I mean, I don't know. I don't know where they're getting those figures, but the idea behind the Sightlanders is that they're a, um, a quote-unquote civil defense organization constituted under a provision of the Geneva Conventions that allows non-state civil defense organizations to organize around protecting an ethnic group. So they have identified themselves as protectors of white South Africans under the Geneva Conventions. <laughs> Fucking hell, that's... Uh... That's a mad one, huh? But there's a funnier part, which is that uh, South Africa, in, in the sort of post-94 constitution, gives the Geneva Conventions force of law. So by constituting themselves under the Geneva Conventions, they're constitutionally protected. That's their claim. Uh, I don't know if that would stand up in court, but that's how they play it. It's really clever. You said they're literally giving up for like a civil war. Like how so? Well, so they believe that Siner von Rendsburg predicted a coming World War III that would begin in South Africa with the massacre of whites. They believe, I mean, they believe this like, I mean, like millenary and crazy people. But you have to understand that um, in African society, particularly rural African society, um, there's a lot of prophecy and like, I don't know what you would call it, like numerology, like, you know, looking for patterns and numbers in the Bible. Um, it's a very sort of folk religion, especially now, because um, the Dutch Reformed Church, a lot of radical Afrikaners don't agree with the Dutch Reformed Church having apologized for the for apartheid. So they've abandoned the church, don't go to church. Right. So these guys are uh, right wing, right? Like far right extremist. I, that sounds like to me, like how the fuck can you say like, no, like, don't apologize for the fact we stole everyone's land and made them slaves. Like, what? No, no, they, I mean, this is where they are. These, like, I heard people, and I heard this many times, people call Irania, and Irania is a whites-only enclave. It's like a, it's a privately owned town um, that is, doesn't allow any black residents. And these people called Irania like a globalist plot because Irania has like ties to Masons and because Irania like still has ties to the Dutch Reformed Church. Like there are a lot, a lot of people in South Africa who are kind of off the deep end in a way that even like American right-wing people 
can't even touch. Yeah, that that Irania thing, that's legal? Well, it's a privately owned corporation, so yes. And I I went there, actually. It's crazy. Um, But we'll get into that in a minute. Like, So what the Sightlanders have done is they have basically started to convince people that this civil war that they believe in is is coming. And they've started arming... um, And, you know, guns are legal in South Africa. Uh, They're easy to procure illegally. Um, They're becoming increasingly difficult to procure legally for the reason that I think the South African government is pretty freaked out about radical um, sort of white agitation now. Um, And so a lot of people, if you talk to people colloquially, they'll describe the fact that it's getting increasingly difficult to get gun licenses. I don't know if that's policy, if it's just happenstance, but it does seem to sort of be the case, um, at least based on who I talk to. Um, but you can still get weapons and there's a lot of weapons available and the Sightlanders train with them and they have them in, I think, pretty vast quantities. Um, but they're all personally owned and they're all registered. That's their deal is they're all very, very above board. Um, and in fact, the leader, uh, was prosecuted for illegal firearms possession in 2008. Uh, and the judge threw the case out of court. Um, and so, uh, it's kind of this weird gray zone between like a giant paramilitary militia that is formed under the nose of the South African government and a like kind of social organization that happens to believe in a kooky prophet. It's like you could look at it either way. To be honest, I think we're seeing a lot of that in in 2019. I, you know, I hate to be all current year about it, but I, I've noticed myself not just, you know, not in South Africa at all, but all over the world where there's a weird convergence at the minute of kind of old school esoteric ideas and even religions kind of combining with militancy and i think it's just the you know the natural progression of like like lunatic um identity searching you know what i mean i I mean i have to say like having come to this after having just done a book about you know mormons creating like a like a mini insurgency in the american west i was like oh my god this is just happening everywhere this is where we are you know i agree 100 percent um, and then I should say, like when we talk about um, when we talk about the Sightlanders, uh, they're not the only radical armed white separatist group in South Africa. Um, and I mean, some listeners will probably know, you know, there's like the Boromag and like uh, the AWB, um, which used to be the sort of largest and most influential. That was, uh, those guys are basically Nazis, right? That was uh, Eugene Terreblanche's group, wasn't it? That was, yeah, yeah. And they, yeah, they did have the, um, they did have the sort of Nazi-inspired flag. And, uh, and like, you know, so first of all, I would say that sort of, um, I know for a fact that there are ex and current um, AWB members who have been involved with the Sightlanders. The Sightlanders are very, very careful to not allow for like active sort of like terroristic elements to be within their ranks. I actually believe that that's something that they do try to weed out um, because it doesn't look good for them. Uh, and because it just causes problems, like they're not trying to start a civil war. There have been times where the other groups have been trying to actively provoke one. Um, and then I should say, too, that since we're talking about Eugene Terre Blanche, when you talk about farm murders, the original, in a way, um, political farm murder uh, was of Eugene Terre Blanche. He was killed by uh, one of his farmer, farm workers. Um in 2010, after a career of basically, you know, fanning the flames of racial ha- racial hatred, trying to initiate a civil war as apartheid fell, trying to create a white homeland, and then reconstituting the AWB as a you know militarist and quasi terrorist organization. We we should just say as well for anyone that isn't you know you kind of explained it there, but Eugene Terra Blanche was basically the leader of uh, a hardcore far right white whites only white separatist group in south africa that actually went on bombing sprees yes and also i mean more significantly um in oh let me not get this year wrong but in the sort of the waning days of apartheid as everything was falling into chaos he led an invasion of one of the bantu stands attempting to 
inside a civil war and all of these irregular um you know usually ex sadf officers and and personnel came with him armed and like basically tried to take over this bantu stand and create um in northern cape like a whites ref a whites only refuge um and pr- provoke a crisis and kind of end this whole south africa rainbow nation before it started um and a lot of people remembered that and that's a legacy that south africa lives with to this day because people know that there are elements highly trained former military elements that are capable of thinking that way. Um, and that inflects all of South Africa's security policy. It inflects all of South Africa's political thinking. Um, and it's something that the Sidelanders uh, profit from, I would argue, because when they make a militia or something, they're able to wield a huge amount of political force without ever even attempting a sort of attack or like a kinetic kind of engagement because people know that these are guys who are militarily trained and who like are willing to just actually engage in actions if they're provoked so so the sightlanders have got thousands of members some of them like you said are militarily trained they've got weapons they do training and they say they're training for this civil war now this sounds like a fucking powder keg to me but do you think they actually want this civil war you know do you think they're going to try and provoke it or what i think they do want it to happen i actually i i believe them so two-part answer there like i believe them that they um don't want to provoke it um i think that they they're actually i mean having I I was very close in with them. I stayed for two weeks in South Africa. Um, I traveled all over the country. I met senior leaders um, in, I I think, four or five provinces. I went from KZN to Limpopo to Northern Cape. Um, I met the leader. Uh, I stayed in the same house as him. Uh, So I feel like I have a pretty good sense of their aims, and I have a pretty good sense of, like, how savvy they are. And they understand that if you're going to try and make a whites-only redoubt, where whites can, you know, make a, you know, weird racist ethno state. Uh, the last thing on earth that you want to be showing to the international community is that you started a civil war. Uh, and so I think they fervently hope that someday this revolution that the ANC, uh, you know, predicted in 1955 and that somehow still hasn't been completed, I think they really hope that this land reform thing is going to kick off into a civil war and so that they can actually fulfill their prophecy and make a whites-only nation. Um, And to go into like how that would happen, uh, I mean, I think probably a lot of your listeners are like aware of who the economic freedom fighters are, if only because they've probably heard a little bit about their leader, Julius Malema. I I, I dare say they don't, (laughs) only because South Africa is so... It's a there's, uh, honestly like I barely see any coverage coming from there, and to be honest, like you said earlier, when I see it, I, it's usually some fucking fascist just making something up or exaggerating something, so I kind of go blank. I only know about them because I have a good friend that is from South Africa, and he was telling me about them. But these are the they're like Marxists, right? These are the guys that wander around with the red berets. Is that correct? Absolutely, absolutely. So, oh, so I'll intro Malema because he's kind of the key. I, I would argue he's the key political figure in South Africa today. Um, outside of maybe the president. Uh, but even the president sort of responds to what Malema is doing. Um, so Malema was a, the head of the ANC's youth wing um, for a long time. Uh, and he was a, this sort of chubby and obviously corrupt firebrand um, who made common cause with the left of the ANC. So it's important to understand too, like the ANC is a big tent organization. Um, and so it has its own wings as any kind of like long-term governing party has to. Um, and so he was a sort of major figure on the ANC's left. Um, and he allied with communists and trade unions and things like that. Um, and eventually he got too big for his boots and he was kicked out, uh, in 2014. Um, and he reconstituted with the help of, a, a number of sort of like shadowy leftist intellectuals um, and, you know, trade unions and all sorts of other people. Um, he reconstituted his political base um, into something called the Economic Freedom Fighters, which are, as you say, they're avowedly Marxist. Um, he slimmed down. Uh, he lost a lot of weight. He started, sort of started trying to present himself as austere, even though he's 
like obviously corrupt and incredibly megalomaniacal. Um, And he took the title of commander in chief. Um, And he began a campaign to um, basically make land reform the governing issue in South Africa. Um, And this was like something that people kind of dismiss, like, hey, whatever, like land reform, like that's not going to solve poverty. Um, But Malema didn't really care because what Malema did was he understood that for the average black South African who knows nothing about banks and, you know, transnational capital flows and all the other things that like keep people in poverty and make it impossible for a government to redistribute wealth and all this other stuff, people could understand that, hey, this guy has a bunch of land and there's only a few guinea fowl on it that he uses for hunting. Um, And then over here, we all live in shacks. So like, give us that land. And so Malema understood that like he had access to capital that he could redistribute. And so he could actually like advance a Marxist program based solely on land redistribution. This sort of took off. The last uh, elections in South Africa were almost five years ago. um, And the EFF got, I think, six point five percent of the seats um or maybe 6.5 percent of the vote um this year i think we can expect them to get far more um and he's become this very very strong figure on the left flank of the anc which now has to respond to him because they're terrified and so uh last year Cyril ramaphosa um he announced that it would be the anc's policy now to do what malema had always been calling for which is take which is begin a program of redistributing white-owned farmland without any exp- uh, without any compensation, um, and even in the event of like if whites resisted, they would still take it. Um, that's something that had never existed before. And that means by force, right? I mean, there's no other way. I mean, yeah, exactly. And so now you have this issue of. So you get white people literally on TV. Um, I saw this the other day where there was. Um, some Afrikaner, uh, I wish I could remember his name, but he, uh, some Afrikaner was on there and, you know, they had, uh, they had Andile on the one side advocating for land reform and this Afrikaner on the other side. And they were saying, well, hey, you know, it, you keep saying like all this stuff that sounds like you're going to initiate a civil war. And he said, well, if you take people's land by force, then what are you doing but already starting the civil war? So it's like they're already ready. Um, and they're kind of, I think... To some degree, hoping that there will be violence that gets kicked off in this whole land reform thing and that it'll unleash the powder keg. Um, th- again, this is not the broad majority of white South Africans, but the extreme radicals. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're talking about radicals on both sides right now. Exactly. Um, and then on the other side, I mean, on the other side, I would say that, um, you know, uh, there are like Malema. So, for example, Malema has done several things that really... Uh, terrify whites um, and there are a lot of whites sort of who are not radicals uh, like uh, Ryan Mallon who you may have heard of he wrote this uh, memoir A Traitor's Heart uh, that is you know sort of one of the great documents of like liberal South African I- um, and you know he writes I think pretty persuasively about feeling persecuted and terrified in a way that he never had before because Malema gets up there and he says you know I'm not calling for the sw- slaughter of all whites at least for now is a famous quote of his and then you know he said like hey I can't redistribute all this land myself you have to go and take it and that was in like 2013 so he was encouraging people to go and seize white owned land you know back in the day um and then there's another moment where um the leader of an Afrikaner rights group accused him of paying gangsters to go and kill white farmers and Malema tweeted back maybe period maybe not wow okay so he's trying to play this kind of edgelord, you know, political guy, but actually in a place like South Africa, as as we're seeing and as you've seen, you know, that causes a lot of trouble. It does. And so there's a recent example um, of a, a farm murder where, and again, you know, we don't want to go too far with this. Like, we don't want to say that these are common instances, but they do happen where they're racially motivated. So Malema has been prosecuted for singing this song, Kill the Boar, which is an old struggle song. Um, and he was convicted, uh, I forget what year, but he was convicted of inciting racial hatred for singing for singing that song in public. Um, and now, so he, now he sort of winks at it, you know? Um, 
And he said, I think, he, I think what he does is he says, kiss the boar now instead of kill the boar. Um, but there was a farm murder just a couple months ago where someone came to the farmhouse by night and wrote, kill the boar. And then a month later came back and killed the family. Wow. Okay. Shot them? I'm not sure how they were killed, I, but I, I think I remember that they were shot in bed. And so it wasn't even like a arm. It wasn't even a robbery. I don't want to go too far into this because it'll, if I get the details wrong, I'll, sure, sure. you know, be mischaracterizing something, but it was, you know, it was a clearly racially motivated attack um and they were clearly being racially intimidated um and you know does that mean that the vast majority of white south africans are persecuted absolutely not but like there's a reason why people are terrified um and Malema has danced up to this and Malema has like other radicals who are less famous than him kind of embraced the idea that hey if it takes violence to get what we want then that's something the whites have done that's not our problem. Um, and so I explicitly talked about this with Andile, who is the head of Black First, Latin First, um, which is a party that will probably enter parliament after elections in May um, and is even more radical than the FF. Really? More radical? Yeah. I mean, Andile, he was one of the intellectual architects of the FF and he was in parliament um, under Malema. And then he split because uh, they're like Black First Land First, for as radical as they are, um, they're very, very austere. Um, and they're like, it's slightly mysterious how many supporters they have, but they um, they sort of objected to the FF's corruption and they were like doctrinaire Leninists. And so they want, like the FF, to, um, to redistribute all land as a way of sort of wedging in of like an actual socialist restructuring of the country. Um, and they've made allies with Jacob Zuma and a lot of, they've made a lot of weird shadowy allies, but they, I talked to them and they were like, hell, fuck it. We live in a civil war. 20,000 people in this country get killed every year. Like we don't give a fuck if a civil war happens. Like, cause we'll win. Like a lot of black people will die, but black people die every day. So if you kill a few of us, we'll kill a few white people. And he made the quite cogent point that like when a few black people die, no one cares. When a few white people die, white people freak out and get terrified. Like that's a very good point to make. And I think to be honest, that's pretty fucking, you know, without sounding like some kind of apologist for people getting murdered. I mean, that is, that's true, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I, he didn't say this, but now that I'm saying, now that I'm thinking about it, the AWB's insurgency is a perfect example of how this happened. The AWB, in an attempt to derail, you know, multi-party democracy, uh, when they invaded BOP, the Bantustan, um, there was one car. It was a blue, I think, Mercedes. And it's a very famous um, incident in South Africa where one car, as they were leaving um, after their sort of invasion failed, um, well, actually, no, after they were sent back across the borders for some reason, but their invasion was still very much alive, um, a car shot out at black protesters and they stopped the car um, and managed to basically get everyone out and then shot them in the streets. And that cowed all Afrikaner resistance. Just seeing those white people get killed on live TV broke the entire back of radical right-wing Afrikaner resistance to multi-party democracy. So I think a lot of like left radicals in South Africa are like, hell, bring it on. Let's have a civil war. I think the, the problem here is as well for me trying to get my head around this. And I think maybe a lot of people listening to this might think the same, like not to sound bloodthirsty and say like, oh yeah, like I like violence, but you shoot a load of black protesters from a car and they stop you and you get shot back. Like, so fucking what? Maybe don't shoot at them in the first place. However, I think it's, like you've said, we have to realize this is going to create absolute chaos if this, what you're talking to me about, spills over. Because this sounds way more dangerous than I realize. Again, because I've been ignoring it, unfortunately, because of the kind of fascist, white separatist pushing of it, you know? Yeah, I mean, and I think, like, I mean, what's really scary is, well, I mean, I guess the... I guess the thing that the left-wing parties in South Africa, when they talk about not caring if there's a civil war or something, uh, I think their take is, hey, yeah, it will just be, you know, one carload of guys who, you know, acted out and then they got shot and then everyone will, you know, freak out and it'll all be done. I think that's probably accurate, but the scary part is like, hey, I mean, these are people now who have been planning and hoping for this essentially for 
you know, 25 years. Like, uh, there's a, this hardcore of white South Africans who just have not gotten over the fact that apartheid ended. And they still think it's good, you know? And you hear this. I would argue you hear it way, way, way more than it is even ever going to be possible to, like, imbibe from any kind of media. Because when you hear it from fascist media, you're like, oh, yeah, of course, that's, like, fascist media. When you hear it in the mainstream media, you're like, oh, it's just one guy. It's, like, one radical guy that they track down. When you're in these circles and you're just, like, at barbecues and you're at, you know, you know you're out at pizza at a mall in Krugersdorp and you hear people saying this shit like just from the table behind you like constant conversation constant conversation really really like and it's just it's little stuff it's you know like it's like you know the waiter fucks up your order and like the woman behind you will turn to your table and be like can you believe how it's become and it's like it jesus it's really really intense and it's it's honestly it's stuff that like i don't even like to repeat but it's worse than that i mean again i don't want to characterize everybody in each community but it there's a level of social acceptiveness that is shocked me amongst the in the people that i was dealing with and they were not all sort of like militia people you know right. these these are people who are like getting together for barbecues and stuff um and that did shock me um again I got a picture of a society that was on the very far right fringe, you know, but that said, like, if that exists, it's the same way that like in America, like if you're a white in America, the far right fringe is still part of your society. Like I live in LA, I drive two hours to Nevada and I hear things said to me that like, I am like, holy shit, that's crazy. It's not nearly as crazy as this. Right. And if you've got radicals, you know, far right radicals, and then you've got these these black radicals as well, saying, "Yeah, we want to kill them. We don't mind." And then these far right white guys, like, "Yeah, we don't think we should have to give anything back, or we'll kill them." Blah blah. Like, it's all very well for people to say, "Well, yeah, they're the radicals," but it's like, "Yeah, they're the guys that are going to kick this off and will actually keep fighting even when you think, well, it's going to finish now." Absolutely, and you know, I, I would say too, like, you know, there's a mistake that the very fundamental mistake that people in the West have made that I think like this is the reason that South Africa is interesting to me um, in a global sense is like people made a mistake thinking that fringe ideas are not determinative in this political landscape. And so it's really easy to go to South Africa and hear sort of liberal think tanks and stuff say like, well, why are you talking to these radicals? You know, like they, they don't they don't have any purchase in our society. And it's like, yeah, are you aware that like Donald Trump and Brexit happened? Like, so the thing that the thing that freaks me out when I think about this going forward is that the language that white South Africans use is extremely reminiscent of the language that, um, and again, not all white South Africans, but the language that a lot of these radicals are using is extremely reminiscent of the way that I hear right wing guys in the US talk about like Black Lives Matter or about you know, welfare states or about Barack Obama, they sort of, they have this language of like, white people have given enough and now we've hit a line. And if they ask us for more, we're going to fight. That's kind of how they talk. And that's kind of a, a moment that we're seeing with less intensity across the world, I think. I mean, I, I yeah. don't know Europe nearly as well as you, but I would imagine that it's something that people in a European context would have see echoes of. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't want to get too political, but I think you've really hit the nail on the head there with the fringe thing. Like people say, well, that's a fringe idea. Well, we live in a time where people are absolutely desperate to find a new ideology, a new meaning, a new identity. The fringe is a hell of a lot more interesting. And unfortunately, you know, it's, it's kind of the fringe has become very gross. <laughs> you know what I mean? And a lot of people are turning to it. So I think you're absolutely right, actually. I think... The, the fringe groups and the radical groups are actually the ones you should keep your eye on because people will say, oh, well, they're not, you know, they don't have as much, uh, what's the word? Like they, they don't have as much people interested in them, but it's like, well, actually they don't need that many people interested in them. That's why they're fringe. That's why they're radical. I mean, and like, you know, just to reiterate the really obvious point here, which is that like, this one fucking guy in a garrison town, uh, that's not actually fair, but like this garrisoned little village um, in South Africa, you know, that where a bunch of militia people live, like he came to America and a year later, Donald Trump is tweeting about his ideas. Like 
fringe is mainstream now. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And that's a really kind of scary way of looking at it. I, I, I just want to talk about the farm killings a little bit more because I feel like we kind of, we skirted over it a little bit. And I think that's because both of us are like, hate fascists and don't like racists so we're trying to be like oh but i think you know popular from we're not scared to dig into shit properly so i think we should talk about it properly like what what is what's going on with these murders because i have seen some footage and they look fucking horrible and it looks terrifying and i you know i'm not saying oh well this is so bad because a few of them have died and they're just the white people but they are being killed you can't ignore it and like we said it could spark something much worse so maybe you can go into a little bit more detail on the farm killings the easiest way to dispense with like the white genocide myth or whatever is that uh, so I'll just start with that and then we'll go into details yeah. like just to remind everybody listening like hey if you're an Uber driver if you are a night shift worker if you are any number of like a broad category of employment um, in South Africa you are more likely to be killed than a white farmer. So yes, a lot of white farmers are getting killed statistically, but there are other employment categories that are even more targeted for various reasons. And that's just random. It's not like kill the white Uber drivers, it's just killing. Uber drivers are killed for a very specific reason, which is that taxi gangs don't want Uber drivers working. Um, there you go. So like, yeah, so it's like, we don't hear international outcry about the murders of South African Uber drivers. So you want to talk about like Black Lives Matter versus White Lives Matter. like. There is a very clear issue here. That said, if you do want to go into farm murders, they are brutal as hell. And they can be. And they're very, very scary. Um, and so um, there's, I think, two things at work. Um, and, you know, Anzile, the head of Black First Land First, he, I think he put it pretty succinctly, which is, on the one hand, there's cash and guns on farms. And they're isolated. And so you go and get the cash and guns. It's not that complicated. Um, add in an element to that of the fact that um, a lot of rural farmers in South Africa um, who are, you know, 90% white um, have deep, deep ties into the community in the sense that they've hired and or fired farm workers who live in the surrounding settlements. So a lot of people know the lay of the land around them. They're very intimately aware of like, the habits of the family, they're intimately aware of like the gates, the guard systems, all this other stuff. Farmers are uniquely, uniquely vulnerable. That's the half of it. The other half of it is where it gets really scary because there is an element of vitriol that seems to unfold that is kind of inexplicable. Um, and this isn't unique to farm killings, um, but it seems to express itself most intensely in farm killings. So a lot of times you'll see murder with no apparent other motivation than like the joy of killing. Uh, you'll see people tortured and raped. You'll see you know people with boiling water poured on their heads. You'll Jeez. see, I mean, and you know it, it goes on and on. You'll see mothers raped in front of their kids, um, kids raped in front of their mothers. Um, I mean, you know, like people begging for mercy, like, uh, and some of this stuff, you know, some of this stuff like becomes viral and so it takes off, you know, but like just, I mean, I talked to one farm murderer, um, like a, the, the daughter of someone who was attacked. Um, and you know, he's a 73 year old man who's beaten with an iron until his like skull had to be taken off of his brain, you know? Uh, and, you know, just stuff like that that just gets – you're like, why are people doing this? Um, and, I mean, you hear you hear certain answers for that. I mean, some of it is just that, like, it's not that uncommon in South Africa for, like, a robbery of a cash and transit vehicle or a robbery – like, a carjacking or something. Like, you give them the keys and they shoot you anyway, you know? So it's like this isn't just happening to white people. It's not just happening to farmers. But that said, like some of the torture is so elaborate. Some of the murders are so pointless. Uh, some of the vitriol is just so intense. Like um, I had a friend like who actually did become like a little bit of a buddy. Like, and he's a just a English speaker, not radical, even in the slightest, not right wing, nothing. But he had to join to protect his farm. He had to join like a civil defense organization. And like, you know, he carries a gun with him everywhere he goes. And like, you know, not that long ago, he had to go help 
cut down a neighbor who'd been strung up a tree um, by bailing wire. Uh, and so, you know, that guy's wife came home and saw her husband, like, hanging by his neck after he'd been, like, tortured and stuff, you know? And you gotta think, like this guy said, and again, this is not a radical at all. He's one of the most, like, middle-of-the-road, level-headed people I've met in the whole country. He said, you know, a lot of this has to do with jealousy. And it has to do with Rachel, like, like, the legacy of 60 years of like racial animosity more i mean hundreds of years um and you can't separate the two things so that's where it gets tricky is like you know the sort of liberal shibboleth twitter world wants to say that there's no farm murders or that if they are they're all incidental and they're all just robberies and that's just fucking not true like it's just yeah. not um and then, you know, fascist media wants to say that it's all genocide. And that's also just not true. Most of them are robberies that then get, you know, like when they turn into murder and torture and stuff like that, like it's hard to know where exactly the line is between like a violent, sick society that is just violent and sick towards everybody. And then a violent, sick society that has a lot of rage and animosity towards white people for really obvious reasons that like then yeah. verges over into that. Um, and so I tried to capture that in the piece, but it's just a very hard reality to capture. And it's especially a hard reality to capture, you know, in a world of Twitter where it's, everybody's just like right or wrong. And like, I just, you know, you just can't solve issues like this. Well, well, that's, that's why work that you do, I think, and I've read Chosen Country, your book. I think it's excellent. I think that's why work that you do is so important because we have to fucking forget these little Twitter circle jerks and these shitheads on the left and right saying, you can't cover that, you can't cover that. No, we can. We can cover whatever the fuck we want. And the hard realities, like you said, are the ones that are most important to cover, I think. You know, it's not nice. Nobody wants to dig into this. To be honest, I had second thoughts about doing this episode because I thought there's going to be so many people are going to be like no you can't say this you can't say that but fuck them like you have to do it you know what i'm saying exactly i mean that's why i love your show it's great like it would just write down you just nailed it you know i mean or at least you nailed like actually going in and discussing the issues instead of getting lost in ideology yeah exactly like you know if someone is getting fucking hung up by their neck and their kids are getting raped in front of them you can't be like well you know what the fascists are like it's like no that is happening you know like that is actually happening you can't ignore it right and i, I you know and I just think that like I mean I'm really glad that I went there because it was just one of these other instances of just realizing what reality actually is um, and it was hard I mean it was hard to deal I, I'm sure you've dealt with sources that are difficult to like be around you know it's like I spent two weeks in and out of the company of like virulent racists and it was so fucking hard you know to not just like to to like both never like slip in terms of like agreeing with them but also like um remain amiable enough to like continue to let them like show me stuff you know i think a lot of the time journalists nowadays think that they have to showboat their ideology to let everybody know how fucking you know um righteous they are it's like nah man sometimes you have to tuck that in and do your job you know what i mean because actually the end result like you have done here is more important than basically going oh i told that fascist to fuck off like cool no one cares tomorrow yeah i, I I'll, I'll tell you this anecdote this might be like a good little wrap-up anecdote actually sure. i um i went with simon rosh because he wanted ne to negotiate the transfer of a saracen armored personnel carrier um from one sort of right-wing psycho to an like a guy who had a militia um and so we go to this yard where this really really intense racist dude um has this saracen that we're like you know fiddling with the carburetor and like i'm taking pictures and stuff and he says to the one guy um and this is on the record this is on the record like he knew i was a journalist he turns and he says to the one guy you know I'm glad you're taking this because I'm not going to use it. And what I want for it is, quote, to see it running over protesters throwing petrol bombs. And then the other guy, without skipping a beat, says, oh, we should put a GoPro on it so you can watch. Right. And, you know, that was the moment where I almost lost it. But I was like, man, if I lose it now, what other crazy thing will I miss them saying? What the world needs is for me to listen to more of this shit and be able to report it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, journalism isn't this, it's not that hard. It's, you know, it's hard work, but it's not that hard. I think the problem with American media specifically, they have this kind of grandstanding thing like that fucking Washington Post advert on the Super Bowl. It's like, 
we don't need a BAFTAs. Just do your fucking work, you know? And I think your work is very good for that. It's just like, here's what it is, you know? Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Yeah, mate. So when is your article coming out with Harper's? March 2019 issue. Uh, It's already in print, but it hasn't hit newsstands. Um, And it'll be online in the next couple weeks. Uh, Harper's has a paywall, but you can get three articles for free every month. So it'll be easy to click on and find. Um... Yeah, check it out. All right, mate, brilliant. And where can people um, get hold of you and follow any of your future work? Um, well, so they can look up my book, which is Chosen Country, um, and it's about uh, the Bundy standoffs in the West. Um, and then I have a Twitter that I just restarted, and I don't use that much, so it'd be great if people followed me, and it's at uh, J Henson Pogue. Nice, easy handle you've got there, J Henson Pogue, yeah? Exactly, yeah. Thanks very much, mate, that was brilliant. Appreciate it, man. Have a good one. That was James Pogue talking about the madness of the farm killings in South Africa and the powder keg situation that seems to be brewing out there currently. If you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please do consider pledging at Patreon. That's patreon.com slash popular front. We don't have any big corporate advertising on here, so everything we do is on a shoestring, so every little helps. And like I always say, for the price of basically one coffee a month, you can get bonus episodes there, which, I mean, to be honest, that's a whole other podcast if you think about it. We have two, three, sometimes more uh, bonus episodes a month. Currently, there are over 20, so there's a lot more popular front bonus content there. Also, we've got a big community, um, which you can be part of through the Patreon. So yeah, patreon.com slash popular front. This episode is sponsored by the defensepost.com, defense with an S. Go there for all your up-to-date analysis and reportage on modern warfare. The episode is also sponsored by Atlas News on Instagram, instagram.com slash atlas.news. It's about as close as you're going to get to -to up-to-date news on generally conflicts that you're going to find on Instagram. It's pretty cool. Uh, Within the next few weeks, there will be a new documentary out on the Popular Front YouTube, so be sure to subscribe and hit the bell for that. That's youtube.com slash popularfront. Also, if you want to keep up to date with us on Twitter, the best thing to do is probably follow me. That's twitter.com slash jake underscore hanrahan. H-A-N-R-A-H-A-N is how you spell my surname. For some reason, people find it really difficult, even though it's spelled exactly as you say it. Um, anyway, or follow the Popular Front account. That's twitter.com slash popularfrontco. Um, Same as the site, popularfront.co, all the latest episodes are there. Soon the website is going to be up by the end of March. There'll be articles, all sorts of stuff like that. Also, you can follow us on Instagram. That's instagram.com slash popular.front. Thank you very much to the following people. Without you, this wouldn't be possible. Uh, Those people are Adam Berg-Snyder, Axel Iverson, Chad Walker... Dan Dunham, Daniel Shearer, Darby, Diana Gorvanek, Emily Molly, Fletcher Tate, Jack Mayhoff, James from the Discord, Joanne Stocker, Joel Tambusi, Joshua Yabbott, Lawrence Abrahams, LH, Margaret Bowling, Michael Euler, Patrick Bronte, Peter McCormack from the What Bitcoin Did podcast, Russia Alakidi, Ryan Sandercock, Skartoon, Scott Jonesy, Sean Fowler, Sebastian from the Discord, Surushe Hawazi, Teddy, Tom Lochrin, Tony Bin, and Zachary Hinch. Thank you very much. Also, I want to say thank you very much to Anthony Kabarak. He did something really cool. Basically, uh, there's a guy that listens to Popular Front who buys and sells uh, ammunition magazines just you know like a collectible thing it's you know people like it they buy um ak magazines and what have you and what he did was he put a load of them on sale uh saying that all the proceeds will go to popular front to help us fund the next documentary and that's exactly what he did and basically that helped us pay for the flights and everything so really appreciate that thank you very much anthony kabarak really good guy Like I said, if you want to support Popular Front, please do consider going to patreon.com slash popularfront. Music in this episode, the intro was by Home and the outro was by Son of Old. 
follow him on soundcloud soundcloud.com slash sun dash of dash old soon uh, synth line volume 2 will be out synth line volume 1 if you don't know is basically the EP that he put out with all of the popular front beats well not every one of them but a load of the um, outro beats that you'll hear on the podcast uh, if you follow him on soundcloud you'll see when the next one comes out too 